0: Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers, the podcast from Seven Hills, where we hear from inspirational people with a passion to make a difference. Joining me today is Eileen Burbage, one of Britain's top technology investors. As founding partner at Passion Capital, she's invested in defining businesses, including the financial services challenges Monzo and GoCardless, and the business Butternut Box, among many others. Eileen is also special envoy for FinTech for the Treasury, and until recently, the chair of the government backed Tech Nation. Eileen. You arrived in 2004 and yet you've got this amazing track record, a lifetime um, of, of track record in a relatively short period. I mean, you're living the British dream. Tell us all about it. Well,
1: thanks so much for having me. And thanks for that flattering intro. As you say, yes, I think I've been extremely lucky. It's all about the timing, as I think, you know, Michael, I think I, I just got lucky. I came to London, thinking that I would only be here for a year or two, thinking I would take some international experience back to Silicon Valley and uh, the life I'd built up there. But I found myself, you know, in a in a place that I thought was so much richer and uh, so much more interesting, frankly, than what started to look more and more one-dimensional in the Bay Area. Mm, what did you like about it? You know, one of the most striking things when I first arrived is that I realized, um, you know, when you would meet new people socially or even friends of friends, maybe through work. So professional colleagues as well. Um, and you'd start to build up a social circle. Not everyone. Well, actually most people didn't care about where you worked, what your job necessarily was, um, and which tech company or how far in your vesting, uh, period you might be, for example. So it wasn't, it it was just so much, um, you know, more diverse, as I say, the breadth of people and the breadth of experiences and the, the diversity of thoughts and everything else uh, culturally here in London in the UK,
0: I thought was just a fantastic uh, breath of fresh air as compared to the Bay Area or Silicon Valley. You said, I simply want to make my time count, whether it's with my family or at work. There are so many ways to spend time. So if I'm going to spend it um, on anything, it has to matter and be worthwhile. How give us, some, give us some tips to make your time count. How do you make, how does the life of Violin make yourself uh, count the irony is that i am terrible at actually
1: implementing any of this or or thinking that i'm successful at making the time count but i do sort of you know take pause at agreeing to new things or taking on uh work or other types of obligations i guess or time commitments because frankly you know and, and maybe the lockdown has helped to really bring this into sharp relief with uh, the family that i'm really really grateful for you know five kids at home, there's a lot um, that I could really do and just enjoy my days just being at home. And so Uh. if I'm going to be doing something that's at a uh, professional engagement or some kind of professional commitment, it really does need to resonate with me. It really does need to be worth it, in the biggest sense of it. And that uh, the opportunity cost of of being away from the children
0: or the family, um, it's got to be an obvious net positive. You mentioned five children. I mean, that that's a handful for for anyone. But I mean, when you look at your prodigious work rate as a as an investor, um, as the uh, Treasury's fintech ambassador, I mean, you you are. I mean, you, you seem to be a, somebody that, that that never switches the off button on. I mean, do, do you ever slow down or is actually the pace, is actually that kind of like momentum a big part of, of what keeps you going?
1: I think I do like to be busy. Uh, it is probably, though, unfair because my family is probably the ones that witness or they absorb or they see when I get too tired and I've overdone it. But um, for the most part, I think I'm lucky simply because I enjoy Doing what I do for work, you know, I, I don't see it as a job. I think it's been a privilege, certainly to be an investor, obviously to work with treasury, um, in support of the fintech sector, um, clearly to work alongside Gerard Grek and the rest of the technation team for the time that I did that. So everything that I do, I feel like I'm, I'm really, really incredibly fortunate to have the chance to do. And mm-hmm. so I, I mm-hmm. love doing it. It's a
0: labor of love. Um, and so that's why I keep on doing it. Well, I, I mean, and you do keep on doing it because when you look at, at your CV, I mean, you know, you've worked for some of the greatest names in technology. You're, you're now an investor in technology or an ambassador for it. I mean, that all looks like a, a well-planned journey. I mean, but, 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 but is it the case that it's, it's serendipity or, or, or did you have a goal that actually technology is what I'm going to do?
1: Again, you're always so flattering, um, and I love the idea of it being a, a master plan and that uh, I'm, I'm sort of taking these milestones along. No, all of it's been pretty accidental, um, all the way back to even you know studying computer science at uni. That wasn't actually my first choice, um, and I think left to my own devices, I would have done something completely different, but because I...
0: <laughs> like what? What, what? what would you do? I
1: remember what? telling my parents I would have liked to do something uh, like psychology or sociology or something, you know, with, with sort of what made people tick um, and, and what uh, was more, I guess, to do with, with human behavior. Um, and I remember my parents uh, being somewhat amused by that and sort of saying, okay, great. Um, but they, they were actually very supportive of whatever it I'd want to pursue, but they had one criteria one re- prerequisite which was you must get a university degree first in anything um, of engineering law or medicine so those are my three options for a
0: university degree and were you were you quite were you quite influenced then by by I guess parental was it advice or what I mean how, how did that work in terms of in terms of the early life I mean it it, it strikes me that you are a very independently minded person but were you influenced by that kind of was it a pressure or whatever it was in those early days
1: yeah, I think growing up, I mean, I, I don't I don't know if I would characterize my parents as tiger parents. But, you know, as as first generation immigrants, when they had gone to the U.S., you know, to further their own higher education and to, you know, try and make um, a life for themselves sort of better than what they felt they'd had uh, in Asia. They certainly impressed upon me and my brother, you know, really, really hard work ethic. They absolutely prioritized education excuse me, or anything else. And so that sort of carried through in terms of schooling and and saying, you must have a university degree because then you'll always have something to fall back on. Then go ahead and pursue anything that you want to do, whether that's sociology or psychology or something like that. But make sure you've got that degree so that you could get a job when you realize that you might not want to do that after all. So to be ambitious. Oh, for sure. To be ambitious, but also to, to be ambitious, but to also to make sure that you could always look after yourself. And so you could always be financially independent um, and, you know, stand on your own two feet. That was certainly um, the kind of underlying theme. And then also it was a, you know, there were no limits necessarily, you know, in terms of where then the ambition, there was no end to what the ambition could be. Um, but make sure that there was always this sort of uh, landing pad just in case you needed a safety net as well. Mm-hmm. So it's really because of them that I did computer science, and that's probably what got me into technology. Um, and so it's all been accidental. It really has. But I have always loved a sort of how things work, technology, um, you know, devices, and uh, sort of obviously digital services, um, digital products. And then I think I've just been lucky to have roles that helped translate that between companies, developers, engineers doing that, and then customers or people in markets.
0: But, but presumably with the psychology interest, you've, you've also got an interest in in people because I, I noticed that, you know, your, your kind of motto to self is treat others as you wish to be treated. Tell, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I think that's just something I'd heard from a very, very young age, which just always, you know, seemed very obvious to me, um, but seems to be something that maybe gets lost um, in, you know, when when it's so easy to criticize or to throw barbs or or to frankly, I guess, be unkind or be, um, you know, uncharitable, whether it's on social media or otherwise, um, to strangers or people that we know, I feel like that's kind of uh, been lost a bit. But it's obviously, yeah, something I've heard my whole life. I think it's really basic. I think, um, you know, it's something that children understand and, you know, putting yourself in other people's shoes and simply behaving as, as you'd want others to treat you, I think is, is really, you know, a pretty decent mantra to follow. I think
0: um, we forget it maybe too often. And does it speak also to, to kindness? I mean, is there, I mean, because, you know, when, when you think about the world that we're in at the moment, we've got one debate, which is about the unbelievable symbols of being together, that, you know, clap for the NHS, the kindness that we're able to show. And then, and then another side of it where people are, are worried about how fractured we've become. I mean, is that, is that kind of fairness, kindness? I mean, is, is, that, is that an issue that you think about?
1: I do think about it now, especially because, as you say, the world seems to be getting more and more fractured or polarized. We seem to um, be at a point now where people feel like they have to express an extreme opinion one way or the other and that there's very little space for middle ground. Um, And obviously, I don't think that's actually accurate or I don't think that's realistic. Um, And I don't know if that's because social media has conditioned us to say things in 280 characters or less. And so there's no room for interpretation or this middle ground. But I do think we'd be better off if we, um, you know, could remember that there are gray areas. And there are also points of view, which could be true at the same time. I mean, there Mm. doesn't have to be principles that are always mutually exclusive
0: i mean I, you had a, a great reading list, but I noticed um you're reading why I'm no longer talking to white people about race i mean t- tell us tell us what you've picked up from from reading that and how and how how you're seeing the lessons of that in terms of the wider context of what's going on right now. I read it two weeks ago and I thought it was absolutely um you know sort of mind blowing in terms of the history, especially
1: with respect to um you know, uh, black people in the UK, which I hadn't studied, uh, as an American, um, but which I'm actually starting to learn a lot of British people don't actually study or learn about in their schooling either. And so, you know, the first part of that book is about what, um, you know, and how the black population has come to be in the UK and how systemically they've been disadvantaged here in the UK, as well as obviously what, what brings a lot of attention to itself in the US. And then also just unconscious bias and thinking about, um, you know, how it's very difficult because of unconscious bias to have conversations with people who may not have had any experiences of their own. And, and now what's happening you know, this summer, is that so many people are willing to have that conversation, or at least wanting to hear about it, whether or not they can actually reflect it or absorb it or understand it. And I think that's a huge leap forward, uh, Mm. even in the two years since I first read the book. And so I actually think it should be almost required reading, because it does talk about the history of how we've got here, and then also helps people frame the conversation as well.
0: And and when you look at Um, this within the context of of technology in terms of, you know, a sector that you would hope is amongst our most progressive. How progressive is it, do you think, as a sector?
1: Yeah, this is always a tricky one, because I think that on a relative basis, you know, I'd like to think that tech as a sector is quite progressive. I really do. I think, you know, having now Uh, Witnessed a lot in financial services, for example, or worked with a lot of people in the legal profession or even in the highest ranks of academia, for example, you see that um, there hasn't been a whole lot of inclusion or diversity in a lot of sectors, most sectors. Um, And technology seems more progressive than that, probably because it's younger and because a lot of the sort of working population is younger as well. But even that, it's, it's, you know, it's not representative enough at all, Um, you know, to study computer science or to have access, um, you know, to resources, to laptops, to PCs, to devices as one's growing up and to develop that curiosity. You know, that's a privilege Um, to have gone to university and studied programming or to be able to teach it to yourself with resources. That's a privilege as well. Um, And also to be able to take the risk to maybe be a founder and an entrepreneur and to start a startup, I mean, that's a massive privilege, um, of course, as well, right? To be able to take that risk and to um, know that you've got financial means to support you if it doesn't work out. Mm. So we, we don't have enough representation. We don't have enough diversity, certainly of underrepresented minorities, but even just of different social classes. I think technology in Britain and also in the United States, um, you'll see, you know, see a lot of people who come from abroad, um, to pursue it, but we don't have enough, I guess, you know, you know, British people in different social classes pursuing it because it has been a luxury and a privilege and it's not diverse enough.
0: I mean, do you think that, I mean, coronavirus seems to be becoming quite a wake up call for the world on, on a number of different fronts. I mean, when, when you see, um, this is the world of technology i suppose the popular the popular uh, case that's made is that well tech is doing quite well out of out of coronavirus you know it's it's being it's keeping the world together it's keeping the world communicating there's a lot of things going on but when you see the state of tech in 2020 in terms of here we are at the half year point what what, what do you make of it what's what's your kind of view of the state of the nation the state of tech the state of its soul if you will
1: yeah, I do think that uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic has really uh, brought into focus and validated a lot of what maybe tech proponents who had been talking about a fourth industrial revolution, you know, for a number of years have been saying, and it has obviously crystallized the fact that we need to have ways to distribute products and services, um, you know, on a remote basis, digitally, online, uh, without having physical access or presence or exposure to people, customers, and and channels, I think it's also been just as you know powerful, a reckoning in terms of you know thinking about motivations, incentives, um, and ethics you know, and so, you know, because so many people are at home, because so many people are using these platforms, um, because everyone's paying attention, you know, the videos uh, that really are are sort of uh, underpinning Black Lives Matter as a movement, they're being seen by far bigger audiences than I think if everyone was at work and if Mm -hmm. everyone was carrying on with business as usual. Similarly, you know, you have boycotts now by major advertisers of Facebook as a platform, and that's because a lot more people are paying attention. They probably, to be honest, uh, can afford to lessen their advertising spend because consumer spending is down as a result of the pandemic. But all of these sort of uh, it's a perfect storm you wouldn't necessarily have these big advertisers taking these chances if everyone was still spending as aggressively as they were you wouldn't if there wasn't as much scrutiny on what's happening and you wouldn't if there wasn't as much social change happening in the wake of of the pandemic and i think it started with sorry information about healthcare. And, you know, statistics about the virus, statistics about the number of cases, uh, ways to address it, you know, questions about, you know, the efficacy of masks, for instance. And so this this kind of question about fake news or reliable sources started because of the pandemic and then has sort of bled into social matters and now obviously leading into a a general election in the US, a presidential election later this year.
0: Mm, I mean, we might come on to that in a minute, but in terms of the general Sense though here um, in terms of you know I mean, it strikes me that a lot of technologists by their nature are optimistic, positive people. I mean, you know, you called your business passion, passion capital. I mean, is it a good time to be an optimist right now? I mean, do you, do you feel that? I mean, you you've sort of you you painted a picture there, I guess, of citizens taking control, citizen empowerment in terms of what they watch, what they what they spend their money on. I mean, do, do you do you get a sense say that this is that this is actually you know, painful as it is moving in a direction that might lead to the change that people actually want? A hundred percent.
1: I mean, to answer your question, maybe this is gonna be too cliche. I think it's always a good time to be an optimist. So either, you know, it's very natural to be optimistic, but I think always a good time to be an optimist. But especially now, I would say yes. Um, We're seeing that Again, tech enabled services and products are in greater demand than ever before. You know, even things like a cashless society, which was talked about as just a very high level concept for years, now is becoming a really, you know, it's a reality because it's actually safer, right? And it, you'll have fewer transmissions of, you know, viruses and the like. And so people are really looking at it. Uh, conversations about, you know, e-scooters being regulated for the streets of London or in the UK, that's actually being accelerated by a year because of the need to try and get fewer people, you know, uh, taking public transport. So now is the time, absolutely, to kind of um, embrace technology, I think. And also though, to, to continue to apply scrutiny and to remember sort of what the what the important ethical priorities are as well and because you've got people paying attention. So absolutely I think we're trying but, to the right way.
0: But I mean good time to be an optimist. I mean however when you look at the nature of this kind of global, you know, health and economic threat, I mean a, a pandemic the likes of which we've not seen for at least 100 years, um, a a financial meltdown that some people are saying is going to be the worst that we've had in in 300 years. I mean, in terms of the coping method for the optimist, in terms of how you keep um, a positive view of that world going on, even when it faces challenges of this magnitude, what's the coping tip?
1: I don't know if I have a coping tip. It might be quite innate. I think that the first thing you know is is to count our lucky stars. If family and friends are healthy, and so therefore, if you've still, if you've got the time, you've got the energy, you've got the ability to apply, you know, yourself to projects or to thinking about, you know, where to spend your time, to be thinking about. You know, how to make tech companies better to help uh, founders, you know, see their companies through this crisis or a potential recession, how to take care of their employees and the workforce, how to make sure that they're operating in a productive way or still feeling fulfilled. All of those things are just massive opportunities, um, you know, overlaid with this reminder that there is a global pandemic. So, we have to make things count right let's not do i don't know silly gamification ideas on apps that are just going to you know use up people's time or get screen time for for no no reason necessarily let's think about how to make those people feel like uh, they're contributing to a cause or they're you know giving thanks back to the nhs or they're going to make sure that the learning uh, that they're giving the kids uh, you know at home learning is is going to stick a little bit better be more effective you know it. it i think it really it, again, it really brings into focus what things matter now and and what might have been just for idle fun versus bringing people together, uh, helping people feel connected, and then actually
0: delivering genuine utility. All of those things, I think, are needed now. And that proactivity, I guess. I mean, just very quickly on on, on the States. I mean, you you mentioned um, the US a a moment ago, but I mean, obviously, you've had that West Coast, that London um, experience. Um, You know, a lot of technologists, um, I mean, I started with the British dream, but I suppose a lot of those technologists have been really motivated by the American dream. um, I mean, in the past, I mean, when, when you look at at, this, at the situation now when you look at, at the U.S.? Do you still think the American dream is, is a thing? Are you still motivated by it? Do you think it still has the same hold on the technology mindset as it once did?
1: I think that's a great question. I don't think that it does as it once did. And I think even very recent things like um, President Trump announcing that he's going to suspend the H1 you know visa route, for example. I mean, he's, he's actually taking concerted efforts to try and, uh, make the United States more insular. Um, and I think that is therefore, um, you know, going to dissuade entrepreneurs from going to the U S to try and, you know, live out the dream or make their fortunes there. That's a great opportunity for us here in the UK. Of course, I think that
0: we can benefit from his folly. Mm. And, and, and just, just to finish off here in terms of, you know, if, if I could make, um, 2004 2020 and and give you a chance to pick a country to start again with with everything that the uk is facing would it, would it still be here do you think
1: <laughs> that's a great question i hadn't thought about that you know what it still would it would be i can't think of any other place that i would have um you know rather been the last 16 years I, that might be more influenced by again the five children uh than anything work related uh but no i i wouldn't have wanted to have been in the us In the last 16 years, I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else in Europe, frankly. Um, I think now about maybe the prominence or the growing prominence of Asia, certainly East Asia, Southeast Asia, but I wouldn't have wanted to have been there for the last decade and a half. Um, It still would be London
0: and the UK. Well, there you go. It's a big thumbs up there for the UK. And my thanks to um, Eileen Burbage there, not only for her views today, but also um, thank you for being a member of the Seven Hills Advisory Board, which is a a really great thing to work with you on. Now, also, I, I guess by finishing is that Eileen is an investor who knows how to back winners and an activist who wants to make her time count. And I think we've heard exactly how she does that in terms of the investments made. Um, and indeed, um, that life of the optimist, always a good time um, to be an optimist. It's been a story about time and how we use it. Unfortunately, our time is up. So all it remains for me to say is join me next time on The Changemakers. Look forward to seeing you then.